0: everyone. I'm so glad you found us here on the map. I'm Kimberly Walsh and I'm here with my incomparable partners in crime, the mighty Andy Panda Bernstein and the gregarious Kristen Perry Long. Hi guys.
1: What's (laughs) happening? Happy happy Wednesday.
0: Happy Wednesday to you. Thank Um, you for (laughs) Just a quick background on us. Chris Long has been in this industry for many years, dedicating herself to working with families, helping people get into treatment. And Andy has been an advocate for mental health and addiction uh, when he was the producer for Crosscheck Radio and as well as through his own experiences. As for me, I'm a person in long-term recovery and the founder of a sober home for women on the Cape called Brady's Andy. We put this podcast together because the three of us are very passionate about reducing stigma around mental health and addiction. And we believe that the more light we shed on these topics, the less people will stigmatize and punish those who suffer from these diseases. Moreover, we hope the information will provide um, uh, and the topics we discuss will will help encourage people to seek treatment. We also wanna thank Foxborough Cable Access TV because we now have the ability to take your questions live during the show. Um, We're also available on iTunes, Stitcher and TuneIn. So please post and share the show with your followers and don't forget to tag your friends um all right we'll turn it over to mr andy bernstein
1: thank you kimberly how are you guys doing by the way
0: sorry, Everybody doing COVID oh, dream living the dream absolutely
1: yeah i know right the uh the three card monty of the covid uh the covid virus we don't know i don't know where it's going what what's happening so one day at a time for me i'm telling you because you can't uh you'll you'll make yourself nuts with thinking about where where we're headed do you agree
2: Mm -hmm. absolutely i do agree all right we're already nuts
1: totally well that's why we're the all right all right let's move on from that okay we got a great guest today we're gonna meet ken link he is the founder of Tribe Intervention in Jensen Beach, Florida. But before we get – I said that really loud. But before we get to Ken, um, so let me read this to you. I think this is pretty cool. In my hometown of Baltimore, Maryland, where I grew up, this came from my old TV station, actually, WJZ-TV in Baltimore. Decades overdue, Baltimore City Council reexamines police response to mental health health behavioral calls. So there was a resolution by a councilman named Zeke Cohn on the, uh, city to re-examine every aspect of public safety. The legislation says that all too often police are not equipped to respond to a situation in which a person in crisis where a person is in crisis and adds police should work in tandem with trained clinicians and mental health professionals. And the article goes on to say too often we've asked police officers to solve issues that are ill-equipped to handle. Police are not clinicians. Mental health issues like schizophrenia and addiction require a mental health response led by mental health professionals. And law enforcement has a role to play in responding to crises and supporting other professionals, but sending police alone can escalate tensions in situations and result in bad outcomes for everyone. What say you guys? I I agree with that. But we've know.
2: known this for all along. Why is this new news?
1: Okay, no, no. hey, this came out July thirteenth because I think it, You know it, but there's other people who don't know it and or don't agree with it and don't understand why that's the case. Why is that the case? What it's makes police easy. unqualified for it?
0: Because they're not, they're not, because we don't ask the, we don't ask healthcare professionals to solve crimes, you know, what I mean? it's not their niche. It's not their genre. It should be each, you know, they should be addressed by the people who know how to address them. You know?
1: I mean, Plymouth County does a great job of it. Uh, Plymouth County outreach. They actually do this and party does the same thing. Police assisted recovery where um, the police officers actually partner up with um, someone in the treatment industry or somebody, you know, some different partners to help people get in to treatment. it's like police officers aren't paid to, to be social workers.
2: Correct. Exactly. But, but at the end of the day, like what's wrong with this is that, you know, we've known this. Okay. I've known this since back in 2014 or 15, when I went to my town <clears throat> to ask them, why our police don't carry Narcan. And they looked at me, our, our selectmen looked at me like I had a third eye. They didn't even know what Narcan was. So we've what? known that. Like but,
1: right, right, but you know it. But you know it. But other people, oh, um, you know, little Johnny, you know, is struggling with drugs. I'm not sure what to do. Who do I call? There's a there's a mental health thing. I don't know what to do with him. He won't call co- the first person like, right? can't hear you Andy like, lost you andy there
2: for andy.
1: can't hear you, him can't hear him all right so he's
2: so, yeah.
0: saying
2: he's saying that we we know this uh I'm saying that you know. He say, he's saying we didn't know this. People don't know this. He's, yeah, God people don't know, we know this. And at the end of the day, it's like, at what point are people going to acknowledge that this is something that affects everybody at every level of life? It doesn't matter if you're the president. It doesn't matter if you're the poorest person in the universe. It doesn't matter what your job is. Yeah, it doesn't can't discriminate. Absolutely, yeah, I mean, Andy just bopped off'll we'll have to pop back on. I mean, I think it's really frustrating because you know we we see these articles, and like Andy's excited that they're acknowledging it, but for me personally, it's like I feel like saying duh you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah
0: it's it takes a while for them to to get it and and you know for the I guess we're giving it to our audience because some of them may not know that it's that it's not standard protocol in some areas, and it should be. And I'm I'm glad that Baltimore's doing it. I, I I hope that Boston's already got that in place. I'm not sure if they do. I I thought they did, but um, and and they're grassroots level uh movements. You know what I mean? They're not. A lot of them are just like Pari. He was talking about Pari. I think that's a, a very community based uh, program as opposed to a mandate from legislature. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, Pari's been great, but like um, Susan Will Silva from East Bridgewater, uh, EB Hope, right? She's been doing this. She's been doing trying to get this outreach for a very long time, trying to get somebody to go after an overdose, to knock on the door and offer support, you know, have somebody go and speak to that person. Because how many times does a cop go to an overdose, a person goes to the emergency room, and less than a week later, the cops back at that house because of another overdose. It's well, kind of, yeah. right. I mean, that's, it, it's, it's, it's sad. I mean, we've tried to help. And I think that cops in general, um, they want to help, but they only, yeah. oh, there he is. Hi, Andy. Right.
0: But I think they, I, I also, um, I also think that, uh, um, what was I gonna say? they
2: Unmute you know, yourself.
0: Andy, um, or you're trying to get Andy back. I know. <laughs> oh, and I think I think that's why we do things like this, like that, we're helping people get that information. What do we do when little Johnny has a drug overdose? You know, maybe calling the police not such a good idea unless it's a, a you know, a criminal type emergency where people are unsafe or
2: life or death. Right.
0: So, right. 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 So, but otherwise, they should be calling these outreach programs that, you know, that we'll have listed on the on our Facebook page.
2: Yeah. Are you back, Andy?
0: I am here. Can you hear uh, me? Yay! Yay! Hey, we missed you. I
1: know. You missed me. All right. <laughs> I don't know what you guys talked about. But I hope you were able to handle the fort without me. Um, but uh, I'm kidding. Let's be so. Let's be Ken Link. How about that?
2: Yeah, that sounds good.
1: Uh, We've uh, kept him in, in, in the uh, in the room for too long. So um, why don't we introduce him, Chris? Okay.
2: All right. So uh, we're bringing in Ken Link from uh, Tribe. Initiative, no, in- yeah, initiative intensive. Intensive. Tribe intensive, 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 tribe intensive. Um, I don't know Ken personally, I know ten- uh, Ken's partner Tom, I've known Tom for a long time, and um, I kind of was with him when he broke out and started this new adventure uh, about a little over a year ago now, right? About almost two years,
3: a little over a year, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So, with further ado, uh, let's meet Ken.
3: Thank you, coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys for having me.
0: Good to have you.
1: So, so tell us about yourself, Ken. Kind of give us a little intro about um, Tribe, how it how it got started, and we'd love to hear your personal story before we move into learning yeah, about Tribe. Yeah,
3: absolutely. My my personal story, I you know, it's it's long. I, I don't want to get into all of it, but um, I was an addict. Um, well, I still am an addict, but. Um, you know, I was an active addiction for quite some time. I didn't get sober until my late 20s. Um, obviously, I tried for a long time before that. Um, and I think the, the story of Tribe kind of starts, um, I would say, 2014 when I met Tom. Um, we became friends. Uh, it was I kind of joined his group of friends that were already sober for a little bit. And I came into that group because we had like that, that common interest of just a bunch of guys that were trying to get sober, and I had never had that before. So it was very, it was very interesting how that played out for me. Um, people kind of took me in rather than me reaching out to them. And you know, it, it all started at a halfway house, and I got asked if I wanted to you know play baseball on the weekends with them. Um, they had a really good crew going at the time. Uh, and, I, and I accepted because I, I was a baseball player when I was younger. I never, I hadn't played in so long. And, you know, those types of situations, you know, baseball on the weekends, basketball on Wednesdays, you know, this meeting on Thursdays, you know, it was like that stuff kind of got me to the next week or the next day or, you know, when things are the toughest in recovery, that beginning stage where you're like anxiety ridden and just don't want to talk to anyone you're like completely broken because when I come in, you know, off the street or, or where, what, what have you, you know, I'm like completely broken down. You know, um, I, I really can't reach out to anyone. I'm not capable of it. Um, so just that little nudge from them completely changed my life. And, you know, that group of friends greatly, greatly helped me. So I met Tom, you know, we kind of went our own career paths, I guess. And, you know, both, in the treatment space. I started off working as a tech somewhere, the same company Tom worked for. He was, um, in more of a directorial role. Um, and then we kind of, I got brought into the fold. Uh, Tommy had been thinking about this for quite some time and it was kind of his dream of doing this. And I never really thought that it was something that was possible for me, honestly. Um, and as, as my life kind of progressed, it was, I had relapsed. Tommy stayed sober. Um, I got about a year and a half sober. And then, yeah, I fell off the wagon. And, you know, I, I went out for about 10 months. It was very painful. It was very painful for, I'm sure, Tommy, my close friends, my sponsor, who's in that direct uh, friend group. Um, it, it was just a painful experience for everyone. My mother and father had moved down to Florida from Pennsylvania. They relocated. My brother was in sobriety down here. So it was, it was an experience, and, and this was not my first shot at homelessness. I was homeless in Philadelphia for quite some time, because um, when I use, I, I, I go hard, and I don't, you know, there's no stopping me really until I'm met with a greater force than myself. So um, when I had come back into sobriety, I, I went back into the treatment space after a little bit of time, and, you know, I, I had found much success in it, and I, I went more so from operations into uh, a business development type role. And I found my, my home in like alumni relations and I really enjoyed that job. I, I really enjoyed it um, with another treatment center down here that's close by to us, you know, and they taught me a lot and I, I learned a lot. And it was just a, a, a really, really fun job, organizing events, uh, keeping in touch with the clients after they left the treatment. Um, it, was, it was awesome. So I learned a lot. Tommy kind of approached me with this idea And I was in a, I was at a crossroads. So I was unhappy where I I had grown unhappy where I was at. um, And I wanted more for myself. And I was thinking about relocating up North again. And Tommy being, you know, the friend that he was, didn't think that that was the best idea. And he kind of uh, let me in on the secret that he was holding back on, like starting this place. And, you know, he he had thought of the name already, and, and he kind of presented it to me. And I really liked the thought of it still being apprehensive because of my own insecurities of myself, not thinking that I could do it. Um, and and not, I don't know, I just, I, I was definitely apprehensive. But he convinced me and he convinced my, uh, you know, he convinced my my girlfriend, who's the mother of my children, you know, because we were, I was in a secure job. I was never, um, I, I was never fearful of that job. I was, in a good space and we had just had the baby and we were expecting another one. And it was just a very scary time for us. And I, I I just took the leap of faith with him and it was, um, you know, not saying we didn't have hiccups in the beginning, but, um, it's been a really awesome thing. You know, it's been a learning process and it's been, um, pretty cool to, to know that you control the reins of a, of a treatment facility and in some capacity with the partnership with Tom. And, you know, it's, it's, um, Big responsibility right I mean oh, it's, it's a tremendous responsibility and I, and I definitely hold it dear to my heart you know that that's of how big a responsibility it is and so does Tommy I know he does so you know maybe, I have
2: a, I have a question ahead. for you yeah so you know I've been doing this for a long time um, I'm not in recovery um, and I make that be known but time and time and time again we see these places popping up and you know, They are being run and owned and whatever by people that are in recovery, right? I mean, I don't really know very many treatment centers that are not owned or run by people that are not in recovery. Do you feel that in this position, because you see people that are sicker than yourself, right? Come in, you make them well. Do you feel that that like ultimately kind of keeps you sober like i i don't mean like you know it's you're on the edge or anything but do you feel that it because i like i said i see these people and I'll, they dive in and they help and most of them are okay and you know then there are those some that aren't but what is it what is the drive for people that are in recovery to do what you guys do
3: well i think it's initially you get um you get involved because you want to make some sort of a difference, and then you find that it's not. You can't. You think that it's going to keep you sober, but unfortunately, it's not that way. And I've found that I've needed to keep my recovery even stronger in doing this, if that makes any sense. And even even before before I broke into the the ownership type role, it was very it was hard for me. It was very taxing. And the way I work in my work ethic, it's very, I I dive into things and I don't, you know, I don't use half measures. I always throw my entire self at something and I'll do, and I will neglect my family to help someone. And it's, you know, that has been, I guess, my downfall. So where I, where I want to help someone in the lengths that I'll go, I will say, you know, babe, I got to go, I got to do this, you know, and, and she's left with, you know, the, the kids and, you know, it, sometimes that creates an issue, but she's so awesome and understanding, but I need to keep my recovery that much stronger because of that. And I think that the drive just occurs when you realize that, you know, somebody helped you in all this, somebody did what all that they could to help you. There's been so many people like that along my road. I mean, I've gotten sober, a few times, you know, and, and tried this a few times where there's been so many people that have gone out of their way for me that like, I have to think about those people in the way I help others, you know? So I think that was the original drive. And I think we're just pushed in that direction when we get involved with the treatment industry. I mean, it's, it's, what's the end goal of that? You want to have, do you want to, because you come into a treatment facility and and it's now that I'm seeing it from the ownership role, it's not easy. It's not easy to, Go ahead. Oh no, uh, I was going to ask. As you brought up the ownership, my question
1: to you is: as an owner, you have one facet where you have to. uh, How do you juggle the need for obviously to keep the doors open and revenue, and yet at the same time focus on treatment? How do you how do you how do you maintain that balance? Because obviously that's a real fact of of life that you have to um, you know treat people, but at the same time
3: maintaining that. Yeah. For, for us, it's a little bit different. I'd like to say we own and operate. And I actually, I absolutely mean that hundred percent because in the first year we're trying to run completely lean with our program. So we we're driving clients around everywhere. We're picking up transporting in the morning. We're doing all that stuff that, you know, maybe someone else does for an owner. Um, we're, we're doing all of that. I mean, we're heavily, heavily involved. So And that's in order to keep the doors open really while we're getting up and running and you know finding our groove i guess so it's been very tough on us both of us being new fathers and you know tommy uh has a daughter i have two children two very young children so it's it's very taxing and you know but we're we're there we're we're here every day i mean I'm, i'm in our center right now and i'm waiting for someone to barge in and ask me for something so um it's it's we're we're here every day i mean it's it's very, very taxing on us. But, you know, you kind of learn, you learn to juggle it. And and like I said, it's, you have to keep that recovery sound, you know, and it, and it gets difficult when you're, when you're in this role and you have to, you know, you're out and about in the meetings and you're seeing your same clients that you see all day. And and then you go out to a meeting and you see them. So it's kind of like you have to find your, your own little space that you can kind of get away from it all and, and get your recovery rather than be, you know, because I've gone to meetings and it's just constant badgering of yeah, What's about what? What up with this tomorrow? What's up with this the next day? Uh, where are we going for this? And it's you know, I, I, I'm at a meeting to get sober, um, just like you. I don't want to talk about work. You know, I want to I want to be here for my sobriety. So that's been like the struggle that I've had in the first year of opening this place. Um, so yeah.
0: So Kimberly, what makes? Oh, um, go
3: ahead.
2: I can so,
0: relate to that, uh, Ken. Um, that this with that whole okay so i have to keep my recovery separate i still have to make sure that that's first before the work thing but you're so engrossed in the work and people really would think hey you do this all day every day you, you know your recovery strong but it's it's totally separate and i don't know that you know what i mean they don't understand it's yeah, absolutely a little different yeah sorry so, Chris, go ahead.
2: so ken so tell us about your program tell us what your niche is tell us What makes you different from the other 10 million Florida treatment centers that exist?
3: Yeah. So our program is very small. It's not, it's not large at all. We're only 20, 20 beds um, at capacity. um, And we're very rarely at that 20 bed mark. So we're hovering right under that. Um, So it's a very intimate environment. Um, We have, I brought in a, um, our LCSW that's our primary therapist, clinical director. She is, my former therapist from a long time ago that kind of broke through to me. And I think she, I think the world of her, I think she's the best therapist there is in the world. So I had to have her and I I asked her if she would be a part of this and build the program for us. And, you know, she came in a hundred percent. She loved it. She had just had a child. Um, and she was kind of out of the space, but she had loved the idea of what we were trying to do here and the vibe that we were trying to portray, um, just being that it's a family you know when we started this we wanted it to be not a corporate treatment center because there's plenty of those we wanted it to be a family type environment where someone can so i want someone to be you know and and, and you know I, I don't really mind that, that, that this might be frowned upon but i wanted it to be that situation where someone could come through the doors they could meet me and they could call me if they had an issue you know, I may be the owner of the facility, but I want you to be able to talk to me if you have an issue, you know, I want you to be able to reach me whenever you need me. So here's my number, you know, call me whenever. Um, And that's kind of the vibe that we've created. Um, And I think our niche would have to be that that kind of family environment, the fact that me and Tommy are here every day, you have access to whoever you want at any time. Um, The open door policy for everyone in this facility is um, is powerful and i think that it's worked for many people um, we've had good success rates here i mean it's um, it, it's tough to kind of gauge that stuff in a 12-step fellowship but um, i like the fact that we've created this family environment where you know it's not just the client it's the family it's not just the family it's the client it's it's everybody involved you know we're trying to fix families and you know i've kind of taken what you guys were talking about earlier the the stigma of it all and you know i've I've met, I've met with those stigmas, most of my active addiction. And, you know, I've tried to break, break down those walls. And some of my passion, passions have been trying to, I've been trying to realize those passions through this program. And like I said, it's been a growing process. So we're still trying to develop the program out, but we, you know, we're, we're an aftercare portion of treatment. So we don't do detox. We don't do residential care. Um, We don't have that um, 24-hour monitoring staff. So it's kind of like the step after when someone is breaking into the program for the first time, not being forced to go to meetings, but they're being, you know, they they know that they need to and we're that um, support for them as they continue on in their recovery. So as our clinical director says, Taylor, she says, I'm more so like as as a residential therapist, you're more really beaten down walls and she's more i'm going to hold your hand through this while you continue on in your recovery you know so if you need me i'm here for you um so are so- you a
2: re- are you a uh, iop are you sober living yes. with
0: iop yes. yep
3: we're, we're an intensive outpatient
0: okay all right it's That's so, awesome. living, so- right? Because you
3: said you had beds. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So we're living as well. Yep.
2: So they pay rent and they go to IOP and they have to get jobs. Yep.
3: Jobs, everything like that.
2: You help them with life skills?
3: Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. We've had balance and budget classes. I mean, we, we do it all. We try and help wherever we can. You know, we've done, you know, we've helped them, you know, we'll help them get on assistance. We'll help them build resumes. We'll help them get jobs. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty, um, well-versed in the community. So I know a lot of people that are, that will always call me if they're looking for work, you know, or, uh, extra workers. So I'll give that over to my guys or girls, you know, if you want work here, it is for you, you know, and it's kind of like a gauge that our willingness, you know, what, what, what go ahead.
0: What do you do for I families? How many beds. I know you probably answered that. I have just wondering how many, how many you hold at one time?
3: Uh, tw- 20 beds. So 20. we have ten, yeah, 10 female, 10 male. How do do you, um, how do do I, how do I word this? How long, well, how long is the average stay? Uh, It's usually 12 weeks, 10 to 12 weeks. But what I found is people will stay a lot longer. Um, so they'll choose to stay with us a little bit longer. Um, unfortunately, we have to make room for, for new people, so we'll, we'll transition them into different sober living in the area and still keep in touch with them, but most of the time, it's usually 10 to 12 weeks. Some, some people usually stay a little bit longer for their outpatient. Um, that's, a, that's a little bit more of a step down in care. It's usually one time a week that they'll be here, um, and they'll meet with their therapist uh, once a month. <laughs> My other question is how do you um, deal with some
1: of the challenges right now in the industry? don't feel like I'm grilling you, but, but how do you, there's,
3: there's definitely challenges. I mean, there's, like you said, there's 10 million other facilities uh, trying to do the same thing that you're doing. And, you know, especially with the, the pandemic that's going on, I mean, there was a period of time where we couldn't accept clients from different areas of the country and trying to keep our, our client base safe and, you know, instituting different measures here at the center, you know, uh, mass temperature checks, all that, all that type of stuff. It's, it's definitely, it's something that I never had experience with. So did, uh,
2: did Florida open up and then are you guys starting to shut down again? I don't ever,
3: I have never perceived as Florida is really shutting down, to be honest with you. Um, they shut down certain aspects, um, but people were still out and about Walmart, stuff like that. And they, obviously we we were deemed an essential business. So we stayed open through it all. Um, but if, you know, there was a lot of scary times there. I mean, if we had someone, we, we weren't allowing people to just travel at their leisure, you know, they couldn't just, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to go home at this time, you have to stay there until this lockdown's over. You know, you can't just willy nilly leave and come back. So it was, it was a scary time and it was kind of, it's, t- you know, try and keep, an addict or an alcoholic penned up for a month and a half, you know, it's, it's pretty difficult. You really had a question.
0: <laughs> oh, thanks Andy. Yeah. Especially with all the other um, addicts and in, in the same room. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I understand. Yeah. Um, so I was going to ask you about insurance. What kind of insurance do you guys take? Uh, so we take private
3: insurance and, and we, we take private pay. So we're not a, we're trying to uh, get in with TRICARE right now, um, and we're trying to explore different options for network insurance providers. But because we're so small, it, it, we, we have to stay in that private kind of sector in order to keep the doors
0: open. Sure, sure. And, and where do you come from for t- treatment, sorry, or from off the like first time do they come from a treatment center generally so usually speaking? they're
3: coming from us usually they're coming to us um from a detox or residential program uh, okay. very rarely will someone come off the street um, and in that situation they're probably been sober a little bit longer so they may have detoxed themselves and they're coming right into us um, but typically they're coming from a detox residential so they might be uh 30 to 60 days into their recovery already okay all right thanks
2: and where, are you lo- where are you located?
3: We're in Jensen Beach, Florida.
2: And where's that, as far as like the state goes? Um, it's it's not. I don't believe
3: it's considered south. It's kind of just above South Florida, so it's it's about forty five minutes north of West Palm Beach, right on right on the coast. It's right 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 near the water. Excellent. You talked about jobs, and you talked about,
1: um, I guess, financial literacy. Um, how, does that, how is that program working, and, and can you share some um, – is there any success stories? it
3: Well, I think it's, a, I think it's a, a very big struggle, just like it was for me uh, in the beginning, not understanding how to budget money and not understanding that, you know, once cash hit my pocket, I didn't need to spend it immediately you know so it's been a it's been a struggle um you know but there's there's people that have taken you know um i guess it's hit home more for them and some people where it hasn't um it's all i guess it's all your seriousness of how how much you want to really get out of what i explain to people is halfway halfway house or, or a sober living environment is meant to be comfortable and safe but it's also meant to you know, push you in a direction of, of getting out of there. You know, you should want to um, advance yourself. And if you save money, that's a quicker way to get out of a sober living. So you don't have that person looking over your shoulder all the time. You know, you should want to advance yourself, get your own place, you know, meet some, maybe meet another person in recovery down the line that you guys think that you can get your own place. And, you know, for me, when I, when I got, um, when I got sober, it was, there were, there were steps to things. So I, I would, you know, I'd get sober, I'd stay in the halfway house for a period of time. Then I would, I would get a good solid friend in recovery. We'd get a place and we would, you know, have that place for a year. And then I got my own place and then I moved in with my girlfriend and then we, you know, we, the rest is history Had our children and, and all that stuff. So, um, it's, it's definitely shown, um, I don't know the right word, but there's definitely bright spots in it. You know, I I think we've helped a lot of people with that stuff. And as far as like, um diet and nutrition and,
1: uh, um, and physical fitness? Is that something that you guys?
3: We've just we've just started to explore the, um, the nutritionist thing. Uh, we haven't implemented that into the program yet, but I know that's very, it's been a very important thing to Tom. He thinks that that's a, a huge part of recovery. I, I tend to agree with him. Um, I've always found that when I'm healthier, I feel better. Um, so we're trying to implement that right now. Uh, as well as yoga, chiropractors, stuff like that. So there's definitely a different wellness aspect to it. Um, but we're trying to explore the nutritionist thing. We haven't implemented that yet. What I was going to find
0: out about is MAT. Do you guys um, support yes. it? Yep. Yes. Okay.
3: Great. Yep. We offer MAT. Absolutely.
0: So are you?
2: Uh, are you – what are your trends? What trends are you seeing? And are you getting more and more people uh, coming in on Suboxone, Vivitrol, Sublicade, Methadone? What, what yeah, you So,
3: you So what I've found is there's there's definitely still that, that component of, of, of clients that want to be abstinent. There's definitely an abstinent-based abstinent um, uh, demographic, but there are, if I feel like it is trending in the direction of MAT. Um, and I, I don't I feel like I have maybe my own opinions on that, but um, maybe that it's being pushed a little bit too much. But there's all yeah, thanks. I, I, I feel about it at the end of the day, because it's it's I do understand the argument of, of it's better than the alternative. But as well, I know that it's possible because I was a lost cause. I was what you would say was a lost cause. And I got sober the abstinence way. So and it was only when I gave it my complete effort. Um, so I feel that if someone gives it their complete effort, the sky's the limit, but I understand you have to meet people where they're at. I do understand that completely.
2: Right. And not only that, but so like the whole MAT thing, I've, I was always like, oh, you know, no, 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 you can't use MAT, blah, 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 because of what my kids taught me. But what I have seen is that if you introduce MAT with supportive services and it is used the way that it is intended which 75% of the people that use MAT do not use it that way. Right. At least um, they are successful and they recognize that they don't need MAT. But if you have somebody that is a chronic uh, overdose or everything else, and you say, Hey, you know what? Take this. It's still going to make you feel good. And you probably won't overdose, but there's yeah. no supportive services. There's no accountability, you know, uh, whatever. I mean, up here in Massachusetts, people were getting a month's worth of take home of methadone. Yeah. Can you I can't even a month's worth. So if you're on 120 megs a day, a month's worth, I'd like to see the statistics of how many people have come back after that month you know, and are still sober, are still producing clean urines and so on and so forth. Yeah, I don't, I
3: don't, I don't don't necessarily agree with the take-home method. I I believe that it should be given on site. Um, I feel like there should be, uh, you know, therapy involved. I feel like you should be seeing someone every day that you're, you're picking up your medication. Um, It shouldn't just be, you know, here, here's a 30-day supply because I know as an addict in early recovery, I know exactly what I'm doing with that 30-day supply. So, you know, yeah. it, that's the fact of the matter. I mean, I'm an addict. You can't pull the wool over my eyes. Um, do you
2: guys monitor if somebody brings it in, or do you allow them to keep it?
3: Oh yeah, it's it's not it's not kept. It's monitored and it's it's administered. It's not it's nothing like that.
2: That's good.
3: Ken, I had
1: a question. You you, you mentioned something about the family, and obviously in your title, it's tribe inter- intervention. How, 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 Intensive. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: how How do you integrate the family into this? So our, we offer we do offer we do offer family sessions, so that's optional to the family we'll make an introduction with them. And if they choose to stay involved in their child's recovery, sometimes you'll get a family that ha- hasn't been um, you know hasn't been involved in the recovery and they choose not to be, and that's fine, but we we encourage that it's that you're involved. Um so we try and make that contact and develop that relationship. and Taylor offers, um, family sessions if that, if that's something they wish to do because obviously that's a huge part of the oh, absolutely I mean this is this, this is a, a whole um, aspect of treatment that you know I feel like a lot of treatment centers do it well now but maybe before it was definitely lacking um, but I feel like that contact is crucial I mean I get calls I used to get calls all the time about you know Johnny's asking me for twenty dollars. Is that a good idea? I mean, if they're involved in the program, they would know that Johnny's doing well or Johnny's not doing well, and maybe it's not a good idea to send him twenty dollars. Or if you'd like to send twenty dollars, you can put it at the treatment center, and he can, you know, we, we can take him shopping and get him get him what he needs, and and then you know he got what he needed and not what he didn't. Um, so there's different ways to um, to help out the family. I think that's one of the big ones because there's when you're a thousand miles away from your kid you know, you don't know what's going on. I mean, because I remember what I told my mom was going on and it was completely different than what was going on. So you have to have that, I guess, the buffer there between the child and the parent if, you know, obviously if they, they are involved and the, the child wants them involved, you know, there needs to be that truth being told. Do you have a vision for the future? Like, what, what's your
1: vision? Yeah, practice. so
3: we, I, w- where yeah. me and Tom would like to be is um, we'd like to be around, I would say, 35 beds here. We'd like to hire more staff. We'd like to have um, a group of case managers assigned to clients. We'd like to hire an additional therapist. We're almost there, um, but we're, we're, we're trying to go in that direction but not get too big. Um, we want it all the, to be under this same roof right here. Um, but we have room to grow. So we'd like to grow a little bit and then hopefully expand uh, up North. We ha- we have plans to go into um, either New Jersey, Pennsylvania, that area, the Northeast. Okay. And, uh, Kimberly.
0: Oh, no, I, I was just, I was relating to the families being involved in, um, in treatment. Yeah. I, I was saying it's even true for sober homes. You know, the oh, more absolutely. The families involved, it's just critical um, staying, you know, keep in touch with your kid. Don't just ship them off and, and okay, bye. We'll see you when you get back when you're sober. It doesn't really work like that because the whole unit yeah. needs to change, you know?
3: Yeah. I mean, if it's uh, I also encourage the the parents, if they're local, you know, we've had local parents like come, come visit them, visit them at the house, you know, like you're welcome here, you know? Um, so it's, that's, that's definitely an important thing. I, I just, I know how important it was for my mother and my father to be involved and, and to be, um, Cause there was times when I didn't want to involve them and that was wrong to me. And because they, you know, they worry, they just want to be involved. They just want to be a part of your recovery. They want to understand. So
2: I, think I it's was, important. it was, uh, it was life changing when I went to the family weekend at our mutual uh, location that we worked at. And um, you know, I basically got my <clears throat> arse handed to me on a silver platter because I went in thinking I knew everything. And then I sat in a room, full of parents and clients and clients who family didn't come in because they were in trouble. So they had to attend this long, boring parent weekend. And I'll tell you, listening to you guys tell us, Hey, stop bringing me cigarettes. Stop bailing me out of jail. Stop buying me new underwear. Every time I go into a new treatment center, you know, stop, let me fall down and get up on my own. And from a parent's perspective to, not be able to fix and help our kids is goes against every uh, parental, whatever, you know, and, and now you know it cause you have kids that yeah. so you can yeah. relate. Like you want to help them and you want to whatever, the best thing that I always tell families is like you know you have multiple kids right. The first kid you run around, you pick up when they fall down, and you yeah. walk. Or oh, you know you throw the pillow in as you see them falling down so they don't hurt their little bums, right? The second one you sort of run around and chase, but you're like ah they'll learn to walk a lot faster if they just fall down and get up on their own. It's kind of the same thing with addiction. You got to let them fall down and get up on their own and fight for what they want, and it's yeah. it's hard. It's really hard,
1: so. I, I have a question. How do you, um, from a mental health perspective, um, kind of, you know, the buzzword, obviously, we, we always ask is the dual diagnosis. I mean, do you treat only the addiction or you try to treat it on a broader level?
3: Well, I mean, we, we try and, and treat it on a broader level. I wouldn't um, describe us as a true dual diagnosis, but we're, we're trying to trend in that direction. So we're, I mean, we have our... You know, our clinical director works very hard on on breaking down those barriers and finding out the true core reason of why um, someone's using or, or or why they're trying to escape. And and the thing is, they've already done uh, a large basis of that work. So what we what we try and do is get that you know the information from the treatment center they were at. So the relationships that we have with the detox and residential treatment programs is crucial because they're giving us all of that information that they've. Worked so hard to gather over that period of time, and they're transferring that to Taylor, and and she's continuing that work and making sure that she doesn't let off the gas with them, so that they can continue that work and not just, oh, I'm an IOP now, I you know I'm recovered, I'll, I'll be fine, I'm going to go home now, I'm good, you know, and that's that's where it's the most difficult for us is getting someone to realize that you feel better, but you need to continue. You cannot take your foot off the gas now you can't just run away and be a part of your old life right now you know you're building a new life and you have to continue that work that you you, that you worked so hard on before you know and and that was big for me too when i got sober it was like oh i feel better now like i can go home i'm good you know and that was (laughs) somewhere go ahead I'm cured, I think, right? I'm exactly. cured of this so we're trying. We're, try, we're trying our best to to continue the work that's already been done. Um, but I think as an IOP, it's it's definitely we're more so continuing that. I mean, it, it's not. We're we're not. Typically, we're not the ones making that huge breakthrough with somebody. We're just continuing that work. How are you out there telling your story to you know to people?
1: You're. You know, up north, are you only focused on the Florida area? Are
3: You're so, so that's my passion, actually. I, I'm glad you asked that because that's I'm in my old job. I started something that I, I really enjoyed and it was going to high schools and speaking to students um, because I, I had because of the family work I was doing. I was meeting a lot of, you know, different parents in different they held different jobs. You know, you learn that every kid. Their parents are, you know, judges, doctors, um, teachers, educators, whatever they, whatever they are, uh, cops, firemen. Um, you know, I was meeting all these people and, and, you know, I was trying to think of the ways I can get people before they become addicted. And the biggest one for me and my passion was high school. So I started speaking at high schools and I loved it. And it's just been super hard to break into some of them because of the stigma. Um, not a lot of people want to bring that into their because it is kind of visceral, you know, to get up on stage and tell someone like, I was here, do you want to go here or do you not want to go here? Because there's, there's a side of drug addiction. I mean, you could throw a, a tiger in a dare shirt up on a stage and like, it's just a joke to kids, you know, it's like, it's a cartoon, but it's not that way. It's a very, um, it it destroys families and it needs to be portrayed that way. It needs to be shown that this is not, I mean, I'm not talking about talking to elementary school kids. I'm talking about talking to kids where they're, you know, if these high schools think that the drugs aren't already in the high schools, they're they're you know, and and most of the times they've already been introduced to them. So um, that has been my passion. I recently started a a Facebook group, uh, a man changed. Um, That's solely run by me and it's, totally unaffiliated with what I'm doing here at Tribe. And I'm trying to, that's what I'm trying to use as my platform to speak to kids and and to get out there. It's a chronicle of my life as a person in recovery. um, And it's, that's going to be the catapult, I think, to get me in with these um, high schools and with the different, different kids to try and get them motivated that, you know, they, they don't have to waste their twenties. They don't have to you know, go down the path that I did, and and that so many others did, because there's so many people like me that have, you know, kind of lost, you know, a decade, two decades to drug addiction, and they're just now finding that happy, joyous life. You know, that that is there.
2: I'm a, I'm working on this opiate uh, lawsuit, the settlement against Purdue with a yes. You
3: were speaking an, to me about that.
2: Yeah, with an attorney down there, and I've been helping getting statements because we're at the deadline, and. In the last like 36 hours, I've had multiple cases of kids that went huh. to hospitals at 12, and that was it. That was it at 12. I mean, I have an 11 year old granddaughter. I could not imagine crushing up a pill, you know, dissolving it and putting it in my vein at 12. I could never. But that was like 10, 15 years ago, and it's like we we refuse to acknowledge that these kids are not smart enough to understand or chase a feeling, right? We will not acknowledge that. We can't accept that a 12-year-old kid could put a needle in their arm to a t- obtain a feeling and- So we can
0: talk about it, right? We just right. don't, we don't we just, talk
2: about We can't talk about it. it. We just can't talk about it. It's like, oh, not my kid. Guess what? I was that parent, not my kid. It had to have been somebody else's weed that he brought to school not my kid. Well, right? that's going
3: to be that's going to continue to be the story. I mean, I was a, a a student athlete and and I know my my father was a coach and you know my mother went to all my games and then it was just just like that. I mean, a sports a sports injury and not saying that I hadn't started a little bit before that but that's when I got into harder drugs and just how easily that Internet, Mason, it, You amazing. Hear that all the time about kind yeah it was a sports injury and that's how a lot of it starts right yeah and i was an i was an adolescent and they they prescribed me uh, a a good amount of opiates so it was and it was unnecessary so you know but there there's this trust you know as a parent i think that when you take your child to a doctor they're going to take care of them and they're not going to do something like that and then it's like you're not you're being told that something's not addictive you know as in, in regards to OxyContin and stuff of that nature you're being told it's not addictive when every single scientist at this point would say that it is you know and and you're being told this by a medical professional so you know it's kind of tough for a parent to to see like where they went wrong when they're
2: trusting the doctor yeah exactly yeah. exactly my, when i got custody of my grandkids uh my granddaughter was like five i think maybe she had just Yeah, I think she was five, and she had to get her tonsils out, the same one that's 11. And they tried to give her, when we left, Dilaudid. And I was like, no, no, she needs pain medicine. And this is she's 11, so this is only five years ago. I'm like, no, both of her parents are addicts. I am not exposing her to this at five. She'll be fine. She won't know. She pushed it. She would not let me leave without a script in hand right
0: yeah
2: at five
0: yeah, yeah she of couldn't course. Get a kickback if she didn't yeah. <laughs> sorry i mean this starts with big pharma right i yeah, mean absolutely. that's a whole other topic for another show <laughs> speaking of that ken thank you so much for coming on of course a great
3: guest
0: where can people get in touch with you
3: uh, well, I'm on, you know, I'm, I'm on Facebook, uh, Ken Link 3. I'm, I'm Ken Link third. My son's the fourth. Uh, you'll learn a lot about him if you visit my page. Um, it's um, A Man Changed is my page. Um, I also run our, our Facebook page, Tribe Intensive. You can find us on Facebook um, if you search us. We're in Jensen Beach. Um, it's a, 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 this is the logo. So look for that. Great logo. Love the logo. Yeah. All, I mean, Tom, Tommy, thought. I can't take credit for it. Tommy thought of the name, um, but it is, it's, it's, it's perfect for us. So yeah, get in touch with me. If you guys uh, have any other questions, um, I love what you guys are doing. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you. I hope you didn't feel like we were grilling you too much. No, it's all good. All good. Okay, cool.
0: Good. Kimberly? Good. Okay. So as you all know, we do this podcast to help uh, reduce stigma and to be of service to anyone who is still struggling. Um, We have access to an entire network of professionals and we can help you find the right fit. So please reach out to us on our Facebook page, um, the map. It's actually just map and um, or the numbers given on our screen after the show. So you've been listening to the Mental Health and Addiction Podcast. Thank you all for your support of our mission. And we will see you on Friday at 930. Thanks, guys. Okay. Have a great
1: rest of the week. So Bye. 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 bye.